Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Got to look at not only your scope one, but also scope two and three emissions. Um, you know, moving forward from a supply chain and logistics perspective, but then from a freshness basis, you know, being able to harvest your your flavors and then at the same time being able to mix them within an hour or less gives that product a much better uh, flavor and a much better shelf life flavor as well. So, you know, that's the uniqueness. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. This week's episode is sponsored by Eden Towers, a dynamic and innovative future food company that is shaking up the fresh produce industry with its cutting-edge vertical farming technology and downstream processing. Eden Towers is truly doing some amazing things using centrally located vertical farming technology and towers that leverage the latest AI-controlled tech to ensure maximum crop yield, minimum water usage and carbon waste, minimum transport requirements to wholesalers too. Today you will hear from their impressive co-founder, Christian Proksha. If you want to partner with Humans of Purpose to promote your organization, products or services, we do this just a handful of times each year and are open to just a few opportunities left for 2023 for values aligned partners. To learn more about our range of promotional packages, just check out the new partner inquiry form in our show notes and we'll get in touch. This is a great chat with Christian and fascinating to hear about his life and business partnership with Julia, his wife in running the business, their deep knowledge and family experience of farming and former global careers as management consultants, working on major ag tech and international development projects. I'm personally thrilled to host Christian and Eden Towers on the podcast because it's such a clever commercial solution that I know will make a major contribution to how we conceptualize food, where it comes from, and how we can most ethically consume it. Toward the end of the episode, you'll hear about the opportunity to be part of Eden Tower's second major equity crowdfunding campaign to help them take their exciting plans to scale. If you like what Christian has to say, jump on the Eden Tower's website and their crowdfunding page on Swarmer, all of which you'll find in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christian as much as I did. So good to be with you, Christian, as we do round two. Where do I find you today, good sir? Uh, in Perth, Western Australia. Fantastic. And uh, how's the weather over there? Um, it's sunny, but very cold today, which uh, is not that great. Yeah, similar to Melbourne. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Except we only have one climate a day, not four. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you know that. We won't, we won't start uh, giving each other a hard time about where we live in uh, our home cities. But um, look, I am very keen to talk to you. The purpose of the show today is about Eden Towers and yourself, of course, but First of all, I mean, it is hard to get past such an evocative, lovely name for a business. How did you come across Eden Towers? And perhaps let's get into the concept and background there. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, look, um, what we thought of first when we came up with the name is around purity, um, because what we produce is very clean and, and pure. So it made sense to think of something associated with plants and what better than uh, the Garden of Eden, really. Um, not so much a, a, a religious uh, meaning behind it more around the 
how clean it is, the fact that we use no chemical sprays, no nasty toxins. Um, and um, then the second part of it was really around how we farm. So our farming is done in towers um, or growing towers. Um, those are on a very small footprint, um, but they have a very high yield and outcome. And the way we achieve that is we grow up. So normally our towers are anywhere from 6 to 12 meters and higher. And if you join the two together, it made perfect sense, the Eden uh, and the towers. So that's how the name came about. It's it's amazing. And why would somebody and, and why you perhaps um, embarked on this quest of bringing uh, vertical farming to Australia in such a dynamic um, and intense way? Well, look, um, it all started when originally back in 2019, for almost 10 years, we were living in um, Jakarta at the time, uh, my wife and I, and my wife is also a co-founder of the business. Um, and uh, I was running a family investment office over there doing mainly sustainable agriculture investments. And we were looking at, you know, what can you do in Asia, specifically Indonesia, where you have such a huge population and you need to use less um, natural inputs and resources to to create more food. Um, so the idea kind of came about there. We did a lot of work back in 2019, working with different technology providers, looking at the concept, and it was really about to go live in Asia, actually, um, back then. Um, but then, then uh, COVID happened, and mm -hmm. we had to rethink our approach, not only of uh, of what I was doing and what she was doing, but also where are we going to live? So we ended up making the decision uh, to move back to Perth. Originally, we are from Perth um, because it was just a, a bit of a safer place to be during COVID. And then we had to rethink, well, what do we do now um, ourselves? We knew that um, doing something in sustainable agriculture was for us. And we continued with uh, with Eden Towers. And, you know, whilst the challenges are different here in Australia compared to Asia in terms of population and distance and everything else, but Australia still has a lot of challenges when it comes to the fresh food supply chain and the food system in general. You know, yes, we have a lot of land. Yes, we have a great climate um, and really good produce, but it's trucked around a lot. The supply chain is very long. And um, when we started to do our market assessment here in, in Australia, and specifically originally for Western Australia, we noticed that the price that we pay, you know, be it at, at Coles and Woolies or other grocery stores or farmer markets is still pretty high. Mm. Um, we noticed that accessibility is not always great. There were sometimes stockouts, specifically during COVID as well. Um, and really getting the freshest of produce was not always uh, possible. Um, and also a lot of our farming that's done is very centralized. You'll find that there's a lot of farms in, in New South Wales, Queensland, et cetera, that truck the, the food around, um, the whole of Australia, you know, some farms in WA ship it over to the East coast. So you'll find that a lot of the produce that you buy today has actually been on a truck for two or three days. And we found that, you know, for us to, to put in a bit of a disruptive model, uh, a bit of new technology at the time, there was maybe only one or two others that were were doing it really across Australia, vertical farming. And we felt the time is right. And we also realized that, you know, this could be a business that doesn't just do good from a food perspective, but can also make a profit. It's an incredibly appealing concept. And as I read some of these stats, quite remarkable. So 
farming vertically enables you to use 98% less water, one-tenth of the space, create almost zero emissions, and you get to use Internet of Things, AI, and robots to automate seeding to harvest. True farm to plate. Yeah, and and it, it sounds fancy. And, um, you know, once you see it, uh, especially once you go into the farm and you see the LED lights and you see the technology working, it is quite incredible. Um, you know, you are right. We use less than 98% water compared to a normal farm. That's because we farm using a closed-loop watering system. So the plants only take as much water as the, as they need, and it's we don't spray them from the top. They actually absorb it from the bottom at the root where they where they um, obviously get the nutrients in. Um, at the same time, we can control the climate within our buildings, so that allows us to grow pretty much every day of the year 24-7 because we don't have to worry about rain, frost, or, or anything else. Um, and, and the other cool thing is we have a lot less food waste compared to a traditional farm as well. Because we farm everything from a non-GMO and organic seed all the way through to harvest in one facility. So you don't have to actually transport anything until you package it. And and that's the other cool thing um, about what we're doing. Everything is on a thousand square meter commercial scale farm. It's fully controlled. We have full traceability um, and, and the automation does a lot for us. I think it's magnificent. I must say, I'm um, having a look at your website now, and the picture you've got of the plants under those phosphorescent lights it reminds me of some of the raves I used to go to in my mid to late 20s. It's <laughs> stunning. Well, I, it's actually a good analogy because every time we have a visitor, um, when they come out of our farms, they say it's like being in a nightclub for uh, for a few <laughs> hours. So it, it is very intense. But, you know, the, the LED lights um, actually give the plants a lot of the growth. So we have a, a lot of different spectrums that we use um, through the LED lighting. And that technology is also getting much better and more efficient. Um, and then every plant um, has its own growth recipe. So what we, what we mean with that is, say, a basil compared to a spinach or a lettuce will have a very different lighting regime in terms of the, the spectrum of lights we use, the number of hours in a day we turn them on because we can mimic the creation of um, the, the morning and nighttime kind of adjustments of the intensity of the sun or the lights. It has its own fertigation controls. So we can really fine-tune exactly down to the plant species what is best for that plant to grow, which you can't kind of do in a in a traditional farm or a greenhouse. And that's how we get the efficiencies. And also that's how we can fine-tune how the plants taste, look. Um, and um, when you see some of the pictures on the website, you'll notice that all the plants are, are a very similar height. They all look the same. That's not because we do anything strange or, or nasty to them. It's just because they're growing in an environment where they're happy and they all seem to be growing the, the same. So it's it's quite incredible. And it's something that when we started the business, we we had no idea it would actually go as big as, as what it is at the moment. I was going to ask you about your learning journey. I mean, obviously, it's a sector you're familiar with from your own um, work and experience to date. But just the amount and different variables that go into um, a closed ecosystem and making it thrive in the way that it does. What, what's that been like for you as a as a student on the learning journey? Yeah. Um, so when when we first started farming, I mean, my my wife and co founder, her family has a background in in farming in Europe, but not this type of farming, a very different type. Um, you know, we we found that 
with the right technology and the right kind of processes, and processes is what we're good at in terms of our background and, and what we used to do in the management consulting work, you can actually shortcut the many 20 or 30 or 40 years that a normal farmer has to have on the land and produce a really good crop after three to six months. Um, and that's how far the technologies come. Um, you know, that doesn't mean it's very easy to enter the market here, but, um, you know, the growing side of it, a lot of that intrinsic knowledge that a farmer has, um, we've been able to kind of um, leap jump that and really focus more on, well, how do we get the plant to the market? So it becomes more of a market-driven business rather than just a purely growing business, if that makes sense. But yes. at the same time, there is still a lot of work that's done on innovation and R&D at the plant level. Um, for us especially, uh, because of the types of plants we grow and our diversification, um, where we've had to invest more time. So it's less on the actual growing, it's more on how do you get the plant to grow, and then a lot of the rest the technology does. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I mean, to me, this looks, you know, just, just from the images, the vibe and reading a bit about what you're doing, is this the future of farming? For certain crops, Absolutely. Um, if you believe the hype that a lot of the vertical farming companies talk about on their many media releases and, and thought leadership, you know, a lot of people say that vertical farming will grow everything. Um, it really depends on electricity, which is our biggest input cost. Um, if you can get cheap or, or, or almost free electricity, possibly. But vertical farming currently lends itself very well to certain crops. So things like leafy greens, where you have your salads, your spinach, your kales, herbs, basil and rocket and whatnot, uh, microgreens, which grow really quickly. Then you've got your edible flowers, which perform really well from a taste and a color. And what we've also invested heavily on from an R&D perspective is your indigenous kind of bush tucker crops, which mm -hmm. is quite new in the in the vertical farming space. Or actually, I don't think many people are doing it at all because um, they're unique to Australia. But um, is it the future of farming? Look, for us, we believe so for those types of crops at the moment um, and also for some newer crops. So other things we are doing is looking at working with the traditional farmer where normally they get their seedlings from a nursery. You know, we can grow seedlings as well of a certain um, specification and quality in our vertical farms much quicker, much tighter and, and to greater yields than what a nursery can. So there's also other ways to look at a vertical farm from it's not just farming for food, but also non-food crops. And that's sort of for us being the other part where, you know, we see for certain crops, definitely it is the future. Um, and the other part, which we're very excited about is our work with uh, one of the indigenous communities down in Mandurah here in, in the south of Perth, where we're currently looking at putting together a um, native species nursery using our vertical farming, but also traditional nursery to grow a lot of native species for rehabilitation and reforestation. So, you know, it, there's a lot of ways to use a vertical farm. Um, but, you know, we need to be careful to say, is it the future of farming? For some crops, yes. It's not the future for everything. It's fantastic. And I'm just having a read of um, the crop mix. So you've got the current crops, you've got some things in commercialization, you've got what's being developed for downstream refining, which is very exciting too, and then ready for consumption, the future food labs as well. So yes. well, you've got, you got a nice um, set of plans for the future. 
Yeah, correct, correct. So, you know, we're all about challenging um, the norm, even in the vertical farming space. You know, when we first started, um, we were trying to raise some money here in Australia and everyone was saying, oh, you need to own your own technology and IP. And we felt, well, that's probably not the right way to do it because there are big companies internationally that have invested lots of millions of dollars to develop the technology to where it is. Um, And we felt, well, why don't we just combine the best of breed technology that's out there and come up with the the best farm possible um, from a yield and a price perspective? So, you know, that's how we kind of started with the technology avenue. Going now down to our downstream processing and, and the value adding activities we're doing, we're also at the same time looking at, well, apart from farming really amazing and and clean crops, what else can we do? And that what else is in the future of food, as we call it. So we're kind of starting to transition more into a food company. um, And that food company is there to look at, well, there's a lot of different allergies people have. There's a lot of things where people just don't have access to certain meats, for example, or cheeses or mushrooms, or just want to have a different diet because of choice. Um, And we're currently looking at, well, what are those food systems and those food types that we can complementary produce alongside our farm and then offer just something else? Um, And one thing of uh, a couple of things of that is, you know, we've invested quite heavily into moving into mushroom growing, those specialty mushrooms, those really cool oyster mushrooms. Oh, love them. Yeah, very tasty. And you've got many different colors. It's not just the white ones. You've got pink, yellow, blue. So some really cool color mix. They look the best, I think. And that would definitely make your place good for raves. You know, the the, the mushrooms and the microgreens would be perfect. I think well, and could... imagine the other mushrooms we can grow. How good those raves will be. <laughs> well, and, and the government has recently legalized some of that as well. We, we should specify that. Absolutely. So we're, we're talking about purely medical use cases here. You know, I think it's fantastic. I, I think the um the mushroom boom, particularly as a nootropic as well, has been quite interesting. I found myself online looking at some um uh, different types of lion's mane gummies that you can get now. Yes. Um, and, you know, they, they have some beautiful mushrooms out there that seem to have some great cognitive and enhancing effects, which would be good to look at too. No, absolutely. And, and you know, the oysters is one, lion's mane is another, mm. which has been long known for helping brain function, especially for studying and those kind of things. You know, shiitakes is another one. Um, we're exploring other mushrooms that can be used for leathers and, and all kinds of different things. And mushrooms are great because they kind of grow quite easily. You don't have to do much with them. You just need to have the right mix. Yep. Um But, you know, apart from the mushrooms, um, where we're working with a really good grower here in in WA at the moment, and we'll bring that across to Adelaide as well, we're also looking at alternative proteins. So we're not calling it as an alternative to meat um, because, you know, we we have a different viewpoint on that. It's for those people who want to try something different. Yep. Um, You know, you can never really replace meat through these alternative proteins in our view, but it gives you something around being a little bit more curious in what you eat. So, you know, we have um, alternative protein nuggets, we have burgers, um, and all those products we're flavoring with crops from our vertical farms. Oh, that's great. And what's the what's the base um, uh, alternative that you're using for them? Um, so these are chickpea-based mainly. Yep. Uh, and we're working with a company out of, of London um, called Eat Curious um, for a lot of that. And Fantastic. we're looking at also setting up a partnership with them to to bring that suite of products here. But the, the cool concept is the flavoring of it from a vertical farm. So it becomes a very captive 
you know, from a sustainability standpoint, a very low carbon kind of product um, that can be enjoyed. But most importantly, the taste is better than anything that's on the market at the moment. Yes, yes. And I, and I think that, that sort of uplift that they get from working with you as a supplier in that supply chain would be enormous. Absolutely, because you've got to look at not only your scope one, but also scope two and three emissions, um, you know, moving forward from a supply chain and logistics perspective. But then from a freshness basis, you know, being able to harvest your your flavors and then at the same time being able to mix them within an hour or less gives that product a much better uh, flavor and a much better shelf life flavor as well so you know that's the uniqueness and then there's many other things we're looking at at the moment um where you know we want to have a food company where we don't just sell leafy stuff and really good veggies and that but where we can sell a a bunch of things and even go into complete meals in the future as well if if that's something that that we can do so uh pop quiz random question uh and potential innovation as well have you tried different varieties of music on different plants and do they help the growth? Because that's something that I read. Uh, it could be entirely made up. I have no knowledge of the industry at all, but really curious. Well, the raves didn't work that well. Um, <laughs> the people we had in now. Um, what, what, it's not so much the music, but the vibration that happens. So naturally with plants, um, you know, when they're outside, uh, they do need to have some movement to bring out certain oils or, or other parts of the plant that's getting into the very specific crop science of it, which I'm not an expert in, but the team is. But, you know, the music mimics some of those vibrations, from what I understand, and that then produces different um, types of outputs that the plant produces. So, yes, there is validity in it. We have tried it. Um but you know we didn't see the the minuscule kind of enhancements to growth or so uh, mind you it is something that as part of our plant led strategy that we're looking more into to how do you get the plants to mimic outdoor environment without mm. the the issues of pest disease um and other things that impact them yeah and i think you need to co-design uh, carefully with the plants and ask them what is their favorite spotify playlist an artist you know you don't want to you can't assume what the plant would enjoy listening to that's the part that's most offensive to me is how can you be the one to tell the plant that it enjoys beethoven or mozart you must listen you know no look and, and i listen to the plants so when we first started uh, eden towers my wife thought i was crazy because i would go in and talk to the plants um <laughs> which i still sometimes do gets a bit lonely in there sometimes so they're they're great <laughs> listeners um, they don't talk back know, too much either, and there's a lot great. of co2 that i put out so who, who knows if that helps them grow it's amazing and so who are your customers at the moment are you very much in the b2b space b2c uh, restaurants yeah, for us, um, the important part has been to find customers that we can work for into the long term. You know, initially, uh, currently, we we mainly do wholesale or only wholesale. Um, initially, we started trying the Horeca markets, so the hotels, restaurants, and cafes. And we also had ambitions, you know, to go big and go into the big grocery stores, etc. But we found that the amount of logistics to service the Horeca market and then some of the complexities to work with the big grocery chains just doesn't work for us yet, um, being a startup business still. So we found the wholesale market to be exceptionally great to work with. It's a very traditional way of working. We found here in Perth and 
as well as in Adelaide. And we've had some some great relationships that we've built up there where, you know, a handshake is worth more than than other things, um, which is hard to find these days. So we've really enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, there's so much demand out there in the wholesale market for good produce and produce, especially that can be delivered on time because some of the wholesalers are, are struggling to fulfill their quotas because of just environmental conditions that uh, uh, a traditional farm faces. So for us, we know that we can deliver on the day the exact quantities that that our customers worked, uh, asked for, and um, that's what they love. The next part, which we're getting into, is um, what we're hoping to move into once we've got the next commercial farm running here in Perth and Adelaide, is your meal delivery platforms. You know, they they have new recipes that come out on a weekly or fortnightly basis. Um, and for them, changing the recipes based on what's available isn't how they can be um, kind of leading in the market. If they can change their recipe based on what they want to do, it becomes more lucrative for them. So because we can grow so fast, so our leafy greens and herbs and, and that take about uh, between two to three weeks to be ready for harvesting, which is about three times or two and a half times faster than what a traditional farm does. Whereas our microgreens are done, some of them are done within a week, some within maybe eight to nine days. So it allows us to really adjust very quickly based on market demands and fulfill what some of our customers want. Um, and that's the other cool thing about it, you know, being able to supply on the dot with the right quantities to the right quality it really opens up a new way of supplying food into the market. Christian, changing tack um, slightly, what's it like to start up or scale up a family business, um, you know, doing something together with your partner, your wife? Is it something where I always imagine what it would be like for me? Is it sort of a integration of both worlds or is it does it bring additional pressures that you have to na- navigate? Um, interesting. So... Both my wife and I come from a family business background, and um, both of our families always had to kind of hustle and work hard um, because we came from Germany to to Australia when I was eight, so I grew up here, um, a chubby little white German kid, um, going to school here, getting sunburned every summer, um, <laughs> learning to surf or, or never surfing really. But anyway, um, so, you know, it was always – you're, you're you're always involved at a very young age in a family business. And there were many different ways that that I saw my father and, and my family business succeed at what they did. And, and in the end, they were quite successful in, in, in the different jobs that they tried and, and businesses they built. So it was kind of in, I guess it was kind of ingrained in both of us at a young age. Um, but still, you know, we... It was quite funny. We we both used to work at Deloitte, which is a very large accounting firm, and we were working in management consulting, um, which was a great place. Lots of different projects, lots of innovation. But um, we our, our first step to Indonesia was we had a project uh, back in 2011, which we won um, for a certain company. And um, I got asked to go and I said, well, look, I would want to go with my wife. We had a young child back then who was just two um oscar and we said look i would go but my wife would need to come and she would also need to work which was very unique uh, and would generally wasn't done because of potential risks and, and that that brings um but we've always been fine doing it you know um i'm very much the the out there thinker i i as she would describe me somebody who tests the boundaries very well of what's what can be done and what can't be done and you know she's a very good 
um, I wouldn't say just back office, but very good um, steerer of the ship and, and very good at controls and everything else. So it kind of just works for us, you know, because we, we've, we've been used to it all our lives. Um, and when we sit around the table with the kids, we don't just talk about school or sport, which we do a lot of, but we also try to teach them about just normal life and, and what it's like. So for us, it works really well. Scaling it can sometimes be a challenge because of time factor. You know, when when both of us need to go to a meeting, we have to think of plan B for the kids. They're not at an age where they can fully look after themselves yet. So we also have a lot of support from our our families who are here, grandma and granddad, when when that needs to happen. So, you know, having that right ecosystem is critical. But then being able to know what the other person is thinking without them saying something is also very unique because that way you can actually you know, get outcomes um, in meetings or in presentations or whatever you're at, social events, where you know exactly when you need to help the other person or, you know, when you just figure it out together um, when something needs to happen. So for us, it's been great. That's so interesting. And it's it's just funny how, like, sometimes – you know, the complementary things about you as a couple and sort of that journey in history, probably the things that help you a lot in the relationship, help you a lot in the business relationship too, I imagine. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's more um, do first, ask for forgiveness later. Whereas for her, <laughs> Same. <it's, laughs> whereas for, for Julia, I shouldn't say her, whereas for Julia, it's no, let's sit down and plan and yeah. think about it. Whereas I'm like, uh, that's too hard. Let's just do it. <laughs> um, and you know, so the funny sure. thing is when, when we started Eden Towers, our first farm, we, we bought from a company in Scotland called IGS and, um, I actually ordered it and signed the contract without telling her. And um, it was only just before Christmas. I said, look, we need to transfer some money to this Scottish company. And she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that was a good Christmas present for her. Um, but that's just how we work. And and it's kind of just worked well for us. Yes. My wife's still never forgiven me for the time that I um, took her on a, I think it was an um, anniversary getaway to um, wine country. And then on the way back, took her to pick up our first dog uh, without telling her. Uh, that was the first thing. And then I thought I got a sniff of uh, her delightful smile at that point mixed with a bit of anger. Yes. Uh, and my next thing was during COVID, um, I bought an infrared sauna for the house without telling her and she came home and I was sitting in the um, the main room watching TV through this sauna and she was, she was not too pleased about that. But um, you live and you learn, don't you? Oh, no, absolutely. And and the good thing is, in the end, it all works out, right? It does, um, yeah. If you've got it the does. right partner, it's not just business. It's it's a life thing where um, it helps you a lot. I'm still here. The sauna's out in the shed, and she reminds me every now and then I'm lucky that I'm not also out in the shed. So, <laughs> you know, we live and we learn. Right. When So, I mean – Let's talk about some of your major success milestones to date, because obviously you've you've done a raise before. This will be your your second raise coming up. Yep. So, what are sort of some of the key indicators for you that things are going well and are really taking off and heading in the right direction? Well, look for us um, from a business perspective and and Eden Tower specifically. You know, trying to build a business out of Perth is always a bit difficult, right? You, you're kind of you're not in Asia, you're not really in Australia because a lot happens on the East Coast and you're kind of too far away from Africa to to do anything there. So for us, the, the biggest successes to date was, um, you know, finding a really good guy in Adelaide um, called Santiago, um, who's now part of, as, as we told him last week, part of the family. Um, you know, that's a success, finding people who are willing to do the hard yards 
and live by a similar culture as us. Um, and for us, that's that's critical. Otherwise, we would have never invested into Adelaide um, back in 2022. But then working with Santiago, um, you know, we've secured uh, fairly significant sales arrangements um, that we're able to to start to service um, shortly, which is around $6 million worth of sales across Perth and Adelaide um, based on the commercial scale quantities that, that we'll be producing. Um and, you know, that for us was massive because everyone keeps saying to you, oh, yeah, but your sales are so small. Well, the market just doesn't give you long-term contracts without trust and without you showing that you can do something. So, you know, that was a big tick in the box for us and the people we've met alongside that. So so that um, a lot of the crop varieties that we've grown, which are quite unique for us, like the indigenous crops um, and some of the varieties of flowers and, and Asian leafy greens as well. Um, we've also recently, about six or nine months ago, started a, a new service line because vertical farming is very capital intensive upfront. Um, and, and we thought, well, how do we balance some of that capital intensity with um, a, a different revenue model? So we came up with a farming as a service model, um, which has seen some success where we go out and we kind of look at the project, we design it, we engineer it, and then we help to operate it for third parties um, who put up the capital. So it's a bit more of a kind of consulting or, or expert exchange model. That's been quite successful. We're working with a party in the Philippines um, on a project there, and we were also working with a um, emerging farmer fund called Nala Fund, um, which is really cool in the impact space in South Africa, which is helping the black farmers there. Um, with access to to better agriculture principles. So we're designing two farms there. Um, and then the other part, which we, when we started this, we never really thought about is, but working with some of the indigenous communities, especially at the moment here in, in Perth, has really been a, interesting from just learning how they've farmed and learning what some of the crops can actually do. And, you know, whilst that's not a huge revenue number or anything yet but it's just that learning about the diversity of it that has been really interesting and i think a good success because you know there's so much more we can do in australia that we're just not leveraging enough that's so well said what an exciting journey um you you have talked a little bit about um enjoying having a lack of routine and the benefits of controlled chaos <laughs> in terms of your approach to running the business. How does that play out for you? Because I'm probably somebody who likes a mix of good planning, but also uh, runs a lot on gut instinct. And um, I suppose living with the reality that things just get thrown at you and some things stick and others don't. And you really just, you know, we're not in control of everything. So in a way, our whole life and business span will be a whole range of um, controlled chaos flying at us. Yeah, well, look, when when I used to work in the professional businesses, not saying Eden Towers isn't professional, but um, in, in the big corporates doing my consulting work, um, you know, it was very regimented. There was a lot of structure. There was a lot of planning and all that. And, you know, some of the strategies we wrote and everything were, were really great uh, and really well done. But I always felt that... Um, where I excel is when you're put into a really deep end, uh, when you really don't know if it's black or white, you're kind of in the middle of gray the constantly um, and just kind of swimming uphill uh, or upstream against a river. Um, and you're kind of 
constantly trying to solve things. Um, whilst that works for me, and I'm very good at being able to then, you know, piece different pieces together to to make a cluster of of actions that need to happen. So there is some structure. Um, it just definitely doesn't work for my wife, right? She she will just walk away um, when I have one of those kind of thinking <laughs> sessions. Um, but, you know, for me, it works um, because what I find is being able to look at many different things at once, you kind of draw parallels between them and often you find very uncommon things. So there's a bit of design thinking approach, I guess, in that where, you know, having coming from a consulting background, you do a lot of design thinking where you just stick up lots of problems or, or observations, and then you try and consolidate those into a, a, a pattern or a cluster of stuff. And I guess that's what I do. Instead of using post-its these days, I just do it in my head. Um, and then I come back to people in the team. Um, so that works for me. And I find that being able to innovate that way uh, allows me to sometimes find solutions that other people don't. Um, whilst it's frustrating for a lot of people, but um, it, it's definitely helped in you know certain things like these alternative proteins, I guess, um, and some of the other stuff we're doing around the plant-led strategy and and just you know bringing different industries together and and never saying you know never accepting why something is the way it is, always asking well why is that that way and can't we find a better way of of doing that. I love it. It's sort of that great combination of management consulting think with just like practical innovation, solution making and everything that we like to hear in the startup scale up space. So well, well I done. think it's being street smart, right? Um, yes. The books teach you a certain number of things, but if you can't apply it, what's the point? So, you know, for me, I, I will always hire someone who is, sounds a bit basic, but who is more street smart. Um, than somebody who's got the best grades in the world. Because I find the street smart person from a business perspective can usually execute better when you give them a challenging situation, especially when you have a very much a people business. You know, our industry is all people and relationships, yeah. like many others. But, you know, this one is all traditional. You're working with families that have been in the business for 100 years, 50 years, and you kind of just got to roll with the way that they work and just accept it. I think mental flexibility and also muscle memory sort of comes to mind as well. So, you know, how do people operate in certain situations and 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 understanding those relationships really well is key. Yep. Yep. And and how to leverage those relationships, you know. Yep. A relationship is great, but if you don't know what to do with it or how to utilize that person, and it's not about using people, but it's about utilizing what each of you brings together from a business perspective, that is where you know, it's about experience and, and often, you know, I found just working in one place or one company, you don't get that experience. You need to go through some very good highs um, and some very good lows, kind of like at a rave coming back to that earlier <laughs> analogy. But, you know, I love I, that I've... people are going to remember this episode by my <laughs> loose analogy from the plants to the rave. But anyway, it's nice to have a motif. <laughs> No, so um, you know, we've I've experienced some really good highs in my career and, and personal life and some very bad lows, but you learn from those. Mm. And and if you don't, you know, reflect on those, why have you gone through them? And and I think, you know, looking back at Eden Towers, there've been more lows, I can tell you, than highs at the moment, because everybody wants that hundred million dollar equity check and grow to a billion dollar company, but it doesn't happen very no. quickly. 
um, and especially in an industry like ours, which is agriculture, you know, not the most sexy thing in the world. Um, but, you know, it is definitely possible. Uh, you just got to keep at it and persevere and, and never take no for an answer, um, which is the other thing that I think is critical as a startup founder. It doesn't matter how difficult a situation gets or how close you are to, you know, only a few cents or no dollars in the account. You just, if you believe in it, you just got to keep going. I love it, Christian. What a, what a great way to wrap up. So I do want to ask about your raise because I'm now reading on Swarma and I'm sort of finding myself, uh, I'm finding very hard not to click on expressing my interest. But to talk to us about your latest campaign uh, when that launches and how people can get involved with your Swarma uh, raise. Yeah. So for those people that don't know, Swarma is, is an Adelaide-based company, um, a fairly new player in the crowdfunding space. Um, you know, we we met them by a cold call. Um, and and we they contacted us and we found well what a great way to just kind of give another company a go because in this startup ecosystem we all got to kind of work together so um, we're using Swarma which is an Adelaide based company for our raise um, and um, this will be our second crowdfunding raise our first one was quite successful this one focuses more on um, getting in some some funding to support us on some R and D activities and some commissioning of equipment. So we've recently purchased um, some equipment that once commissioned will be around uh, an investment of $3 million. Um, a lot of those funds are already secured. So we're, we're just hoping to support, you know, also some Australian retail investors to get into our business, um, which is quite unique um, at an early stage and hopefully find some interest in what we're doing. Um, we'll, we'll look at raising you know, uh, the offer is currently uh, in expression of interest phase. Uh, we'll be going live sometime next week. Um, and, you know, with, with those funds, we'll be able to achieve quite a lot once we've raised them. Um, and especially on the diversification of our company to move into a future food company. And that's the exciting part and why we want more people involved as well to to see what we're doing and to be part of something that's unique. Fantastic. As we were speaking, you might have heard me typing. I have just personally expressed my interest in your raise. So hopefully I hear about that uh, next next week. If the podcast will come out, um, let's imagine a future Christian and future Mike saying, oh, enjoy the podcast. We're now open for business. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, right. Eating leafy greens. <laughs> eating leafy greens and dreaming about mushroom and chickpea futures, which is very- At a rave. At a rave, yeah. <laughs> at a rave in your facility, vertically. Um, so thank you for being with me. How can people connect with you and learn more about Eden Towers they wish to do so? Um, so um, sometimes to our detriment, we give out our emails um, and phone numbers which I probably won't do on the podcast. We, okay. We've had some pretty canny calls, which is pretty cool. Um, but if you if you jump to our website, uh, www.edentowers.life, um, or we're on socials as well, uh, Facebook and Instagram, or on to our email, which is communications at edentowers.life, um, you'll either get Julia or myself. Um, we don't have a robot answering. It's We try to answer everyone ourselves. And happy to chat to anyone about anything, um, including raves and some of the experience we've had as well at those. <laughs> you can also talk to me about raves if you need, just FYI. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being with me. Hang on. Um, been lovely chatting with you. We'll have a quick debrief. Lovely. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? 
If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.